If you would, turn to Mark chapter 9. This morning we're finishing this chapter of Mark 9. And I'd like for you to look at a photo I have up here. Hopefully it'll be big enough for you to see. And I'd like you to tell me what you think you're looking at. What does that look like to you? Volcano? I'm hearing that. What else? Fire on the side of a mountain. What? Hell? Okay, it's not a photo of hell, but it ties into what we're talking about hell today. So yes. It looks like the vents out of a volcano. I agree, that photo does look like a volcano, but it is not a volcano. What you're looking at, and I have another photo to help give it some context, this is a fire in a landfill in Alabama. And if you've seen or heard about it in the news, this has been burning for close to three months now. Here's part of an article that I found. The headline is, Hot Mess, Why a Landfill Fire Has Raged Underground for Months in Alabama. An underground fire at Environmental Landfill Incorporated in St. Clair County keeps burning, as it has for over two months, now almost three months. Though various government officials, ranging from local to federal levels, have been engaged for nearly three months, the cause of the fire remains undetermined. Residents report an overwhelming smell and complain of the smoke. Some have temporarily relocated to avoid its impact, and residents who remain in their homes near the fire have been advised to limit outdoor activities and install high-efficiency filters in their heating and air conditioning systems. The landfill is privately owned, so part of the reason it has burned this long is figuring out who's responsible to take care of it, and they've been disagreeing on that. But the fact is, it is very difficult to get this fire to go out because it has been burning mostly underground in a landfill. So there's plenty of fuel to burn. You say, why are you talking about this? Because it's going to tie into our sermon. We're going to talk about another landfill that had been on fire for decades. But for right now, I hope you've had a chance to find our passage because I'm going to read it to us. Would you stand, please? I'm going to read. And I'm going to back up to verse 30. So this is Mark 9. This will, this will cover both what we studied last week and what we are studying today. So you follow along, please. Then they departed there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask him. Then he came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent. For on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now John answered him, saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, do not forbid him. For no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. 
And whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand makes you sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot makes you sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye makes you sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be seasoned with fire, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves, and have peace with one another. Let's pray together, please. Our Father, we thank you that you are faithful and good and unchanging and merciful. Lord, because you are all of these things and because you do not change, we can come to you. We can bring our requests before you. We can find grace to help in our time of need. So we rejoice that we can come to the living God by Jesus Christ, his son. Father, this is a sobering and in some ways difficult passage that we are considering together today. And so I ask that you would give us help. That you would give us understanding Lord, we claim the promise that your Holy Spirit is given to us to lead us, to guide us into all truth. We ask that he would do that work today to illumine our hearts and minds. Father, I pray that in these words we would find encouragement where we need that today. I pray that we would find conviction where we need that today. Lord, we know that these are your words that you have spoken and that they have meaning for us. And so we ask that you would guide us to understand exactly what you want us to do with this passage today. Father, I ask for your help, that your Holy Spirit would anoint me to teach your word accurately this morning, that your word would come through and that our ears and ultimately our hearts would receive what you have and that it would bear fruit that it would bear much fruit for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. I have two main points, two big ideas that I'd like you to get this morning. And if you don't get anything else that I say this morning, please get this. First, God takes sin seriously. God takes sin seriously. Second, we must take sin seriously. Now that's very broad, but I think it fits 
with all of the verses in this section. So with that in mind, I have three points of an outline, three sentences to go with the corresponding verses. First, verse 42, don't cause someone else to sin. And then the biggest section for us today, verses 43 to 48, don't tolerate your own sin. And then the last two verses, verses 49 and 50, live at peace with others. We're going to go back to verse 42 and cover this a verse at a time or a paragraph at a time. So we're going back to that first point, don't cause someone else to sin. I read from verse 30 because I wanted you to see how this verse, verse 42, connects what we did last week to what we're doing today. We have the mention of a little one. Well, what's he talking about? He had just used a child as an example of a little one, and we talked last week that that would be someone who's a believer, not necessarily a child, someone who has come to Christ with childlike faith. We have some repeated words and phrases, and we'll see those as we go. Verse 42, I'll read again, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble... It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. The first thing we need to understand is the word stumble. If you have a different translation with you, you may have the word offend or to sin or lose faith, to fall away, to sin. One of my study Bibles said that the word translated to stumble literally means to cause to fall to entice, trap, or lead a believer into sin is a very serious matter to God. And it helps if we understand this verb in terms of its implications, what what happens in the future because of this stumbling, this tripping, this enticing to sin. What we're talking about is not just getting someone else to sin one time, though that would be bad. What we're talking about is causing someone else to fall away from following Jesus. What we're talking about is spiritual damage. And I'm approaching this passage in the same way I did with the first one. Those of you who've been here for our study, in these chapters, in the center of the book of Mark, there are three times that Jesus announces to his disciples, he's teaching his disciples, he announces to them, I am going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to rise again the third day. Those parts are repeated, a little bit different each time. And after he makes that statement each time, he teaches his disciples, explains to them further what it means to be his disciple. I am the Messiah, yes, you got that right. I am going to suffer and die to pay the penalty for sin, and I'm going to rise again the third day. They didn't expect that. What's more, there's going to be suffering. There's going to be hardship for you as well. These are the truths that he's getting across. These are not easy things to read, not easy things for them to hear. So this time, after stating, as we covered last week, that he is going to suffer and die and rise again, he begins to expand for them what this means for them. What is he warning them against? Don't cause one of my little ones to stumble, to sin, to fall away. Who are the little ones? Not necessarily children, but true believers. And this is 
an illustration. I think we understand if you've been a parent of a small child, you're helping that child learn to walk, maybe a one-year-old, and you're saying, come on, come on, take that first step. Come on, come on, come on. And the baby takes the first step. The one-year-old takes the first step, and you go, oh, oh, well. And the child falls flat on his face. You say, that's horrible. That's cruel. I would never do that. Well, I, I didn't do that either. You can ask my wife. The kids were too young to remember that. I didn't do that. But you have the picture in your mind of letting a little one fall. God takes that seriously. How do you feel when you hear of a child being abused or molested or even murdered? It probably makes your blood boil a little bit. How would you feel if that happened to your own child? Because that's the picture. That's the mindset we need to have of God's view of someone messing with his kids. He takes it very seriously. So what does this verse say should happen to someone who causes a little one to stumble? And it's pretty picturesque, isn't it? That a millstone would be hung around his neck and he would be thrown into the sea. What's that talking about? This is the large upper millstone, probably hundreds or thousands of pounds, tied around your neck. This would be one that had to be turned by a donkey and you'd be thrown into the sea. And that seems very mafia-like to us. That seems horrible, and it is. But it would have been more familiar to them because this was a form of Gentile execution that was practiced. For certain crimes, someone would have a heavy object, a stone tied around his neck. He would be thrown into the sea to drown. And what is Jesus saying about this? It would be better for that to happen than for someone to cause a little one to fall away. Paul said something somewhat similar. 1 Corinthians 8.13, he said, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. And I'm not going to get sidetracked into that and the idea of Christian liberty so much today, except to say he was willing to give up something that he enjoyed. It would have been good meat. It would have been on sale meat. And he was willing to forego that because he didn't want one of his brothers or sisters to stumble. I don't want that person to fall into sin. I don't want that person to turn away from God. Well, what does that look like, Bob? Because we're probably not talking about meat offered to idols in today's context. No, we're not. So I'm going to give you a couple of possible ideas. One is don't mock the convictions of other believers, especially younger believers. Maybe someone's just turned to Christ and is reading the Bible for the first time and finds something and, oh, I want to share it with you, and this is what I just read, and do you think it means this? Just get over it. You're, You're watching skeptically or even saying something to that person. That, that excitement's going to wear off and it'll be like everybody else. Or what about a young person who goes to camp and makes a decision? Oh, well, we'll just, we'll just watch and see how that goes. It's probably just a camp decision. It won't last. The skepticism that can creep into our lives about what the spiritual life is and isn't and what it's supposed to be. Here's a more practical example. It's similar to something that I got to talk with somebody in our church about not long ago. Just talking through, thinking through, how can we do right by our brothers and sisters? So here's the scenario I'm going to throw out there. I haven't done this. I don't intend to do this. But for the sake of this story, imagine that when we finish today, I go downstairs 
and I go sit at the bar for a while and start drinking. And as you all leave, somebody's parked on that side and looks in and sees, oh, or maybe you went to eat there and you see, there, there's Pastor Bob just sitting up there at the bar. What would you think? Forget for a moment what you would think if there's someone in our congregation, or the community for that matter, who has struggled with alcoholism or has a family member who has struggled with alcoholism. Am I causing temptation for that person? Yes. Quite probably. Could I be a reason that that person would stumble back into sin? Yes. Now, am I causing that person to sin? Can I cause someone else to sin? We all have free will, right? But I can either set up conditions that are helpful to a brother or sister in Christ to prevent that person from sinning, or I can just do whatever I want, and I don't care what you think, and I don't care what you're tempted by. I'm just going to do what I want to because I can. Now, not sinning, but I'm just going to do what I want to because I'm going to argue that the Bible just says I can't get drunk. We can talk about alcohol afterward if you want to. I think it is unwise to drink, but it is not condemned in Scripture. But with that said, I as a leader, I as a more mature brother than a new Christian, I need to be really careful not to cause that person to stumble back into sin, not to cause that person to turn away. Let me give you another example. A while back, one of the churches I was serving at, there was a man in the congregation who was struggling with drug addiction. And what happened is that a time or two, I think maybe even a third time, he was strung out on drugs and texted me and asked me to come get him and take him home. And so the first time I did. And I don't remember if it was two or three times total, but the next time I did. But certainly by the third time, I explained to him, I love you. I want you to do right. But I'm not going to make it easier for you to sin. I'm not going to be your ride home when you go out and sin against God, against your wife, your family. I'm not going to do that. And that's a part of it as well. We can think of examples of Christian liberty, but if it helps you to think of it the second way, I'm not going to make it easier for my brother or sister to sin. I'm going to make choices in my life where I go, what I do, what I wear, what I don't. I'm going to make decisions based on how I can build up my brother or sister rather than be a stumbling block for them to trip and to fall. Does that make sense? You with me so far? That's our first point. That's our first verse. Don't cause someone else to sin. We're moving to verse 43, and this section is verses 43 to 48. Don't tolerate your own sin. In other words, we were focused on others. Don't cause others to sin. Now be very careful lest you yourself sin. Now, this is review. I hope this is starting to take root in your mind, the theme of the Gospel of Mark. I've stated it several times. Here it is again. Jesus as the suffering servant and the call and cost of being his disciple. He's announced to his disciples, I am a suffering servant. I am not here to do what you think I am going to do. I am a suffering Messiah. This is my first time coming. These are the kind of things that they didn't quite grasp yet. We understand that. But Jesus is the suffering servant, and what does it cost to be his disciple? He's calling. He's called these 12. What's it going to cost them to be his disciple? What is it going to cost any of us to be his disciple? And I've said this before, but I want us to understand. 
Being a disciple of Christ is not just for the more mature Christians. It is not for the super Christians. It's not for the very holy. Being a disciple is synonymous with, it is another term for being a Christian. So don't think, well, I can be a Christian and and I know I'm going to heaven because I prayed a prayer or I walked an aisle or I got baptized or I go to church or I give. No. I am saved by grace through faith that I believe Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. That's how I'm saved. Not by anything I did. But when I believe on Jesus, there will be things that follow that are true of my life. And that's what we're talking about in the context of these verses. So the way I would apply this theme of the Gospel of Mark, the way I see it, to these verses is that there are eternal consequences for not responding to the call and cost of being Jesus' disciple. There are eternal consequences. If he calls me to be his disciple, and I just blow it off, I ignore it. Now, I've made a chart that I hope will be helpful in what we're about to talk about. We have verse 42. We already covered that one. We have verse 43, 45, 47, and there are repeated words. So I will tell you what's in here. Hopefully, it'll be big enough for you to see. Verse 42, we talked about to stumble, it would be better to be thrown into the sea. That's kind of by itself because he's talking about not causing someone else to stumble. But these three verses, 43, 45, 47, are saying similar things about how not to fall into sin myself. Verse 43, to sin. And by the way, the word for sin that is translated sin in my New King James that I'm quoting from is the same word for stumble. So stumble, sin, 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 all same verb. To sin, verse 43, it is better to enter into life maimed than to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched. Verse 45, to sin, it is better to enter life lame than to be cast into hell into the fire that shall never be quenched. Again, we talk about to sin. It is better to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to be cast into hellfire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. You say, I'm not following, Bob. That's okay. I, I want to give you the big picture and we're going to dive a little deeper into these different ideas. Here's how I would summarize. It is better to deal drastically with sin now and spend eternity with God in heaven than to fail to deal with sin now and spend eternity in hell separated from God. It is better to deal drastically with sin now and spend eternity with God in heaven than to fail to deal with sin now and spend eternity in hell separated from God. Now we have these three different body parts that we're going to talk about. We have the hand, the foot, and the eye. I believe those are representative of different actions. The hand represents what we do. How could I sin with my hand? I could steal something. I could murder someone. The foot, where am I going? My feet are going to carry me there. My eyes, what I see. Someone has, I think, rightly suggested that there are very few sins that we will ever commit that we didn't first see. You saw something you wanted or you saw someone else commit that sin or you saw something that caused you to lust, to desire something. Verse 43, and I'm going to read the section, and just another word about this. I'm going to skip over for the moment verse 44 and 46. 
Depending on what translation you have, you may not have those two verses. Well, why is that? Well, some of the oldest translation, uh, oldest manuscripts that we have don't have the statement three times. They have it only the last time. Does that mean that we don't have the word of God in a way we can rely on it? No, it doesn't. Not at all. It means that Jesus said it at least once, and he may have said it three times. That's all that means. We don't need to get stressed out over that. But for the flow of this, I'm going to read it without verses 44 and 46. Here we go. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell into the fire that shall never be quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. This is some harsh language, some very graphic language from our Lord. And for the benefit of the younger people in the room, he's speaking in a way that's not literal. Nobody listening to this today, in the room or online, is supposed to go home and saw off your hand today. That is not what Jesus is saying. I have to wonder in my own imagination, he brought that child over into the midst. Is that child still right next to him listening to all this? And, and is the little kid's eyes getting really big? What? What do you mean? So what is he saying? If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Whatever makes us stumble, whatever causes us to fall into sin, needs to be removed. Almost like surgery. If you learn that you have a tumor, you have a mass somewhere in your body, for most cases, that's going to be removed by a surgeon. And that's what we want. We don't want the cancer to keep growing inside us. Well, this cancer, figuratively, of sin needs to be removed. Now, how do we know God's, Jesus is not telling us to do literal surgery, hack off a limb? Well, there are a couple reasons for that. One is that back in Mark 7, you can turn back if you want to, I'm going to read it to you. Mark 7, he's already told us where sin comes from. Do you remember? Mark 7, verse 20 says, And he said, what comes out of a man, that defiles a man. He was talking in terms of washing your hands or not washing your hands and what you eat and what you don't. For from within... Out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness, all these evil things that come from within and defile a man. That long list of sins, and we covered it back when we were in chapter 7, that comes from my heart. Where does sin come from? It comes from from the heart. So how do I know that Jesus is not telling me to go gouge my eye out this afternoon? Because at least two reasons. One, I still have another eye. And if I gouge out both eyes, I still have a heart that can lust and want things I shouldn't have, even if I can't see them. Because my problem is not my eyes. My problem is not my hand. And my problem is not my feet. My problem is my sinful heart. And again, I'll say for any of our young people in the room, I'm talking figuratively with my heart. 
my soul, the part of me that's going to live forever, the part of me that makes me Bob, that God created, not my blood pumper, my soul is wicked. Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Furthermore, we have three or four passages in the Old Testament that condemn, forbid bodily mutilation. That you're not supposed to do that. And Jesus isn't going to tell them to do something that goes against the law. So this is, fancy term from English class, this is hyperbole. This is exaggeration that Jesus is using to make a very clear point that we need to deal with sin and we need to do it drastically, radically. Here are a few other verses. You're thinking, well, did anybody else in the New Testament talk about this? Yes, Paul did. Romans 8.13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's pretty clear. I need to put to death the deeds of the body, the, the sinful flesh, the sinful inclinations of my heart and body. A few chapters later, Romans 13, 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Don't make any provision. Don't go a place where you know you're going to be tempted. Don't put yourself in the way of temptation. Don't make provision for the flesh. Colossians 3, 5 to 7, therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. Put to death your members which are on the earth. What's he saying? Kill yourself? No. He's saying the members of your body. Elsewhere he said that's the temple of the Holy Ghost, the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's not yours. You shouldn't use your members, your hands, your eyes, your feet, any part of your body for sin. Instead, it's as if you're going to put it to death. Consider yourself dead to sin, right? Where it says, cut it off. We said that that doesn't mean literally go home and cut off these limbs. But I, I appreciated what David Guzik said. He said, the problem with taking Jesus' words literally is that bodily mutilation doesn't go far enough. Why? Because of what I told you a minute ago. It's the heart. I can dismember my body, but I can still sin in my mind and in my heart. What is Jesus saying? He's saying deal radically with whatever is hindering you. Hebrews 12 says it this way, the sin that so easily ensnares us. One of my commentaries said, this isn't something we need to take hours or days to try to figure out whatever came into your mind when i first started talking about this that's the sin that we need to discard that we need to set aside we know the sin that easily besets us you know how you are more likely to be tempted to lie to cheat to steal to commit fornication whatever your personal set of temptations is that's where we need to be on our guard if we're not going to stumble deal radically with those things a few more illustrations one from recent history a name you might recognize a guy by the name of Aaron Ralston in April of 2003 he was on a hike and he decided he would go down to send rappel in a canyon he was by himself and as he went down he dislodged a boulder that pinned his right wrist to the side of the canyon wall he couldn't move 
after he lived, okay? Lest you be worried. He lived, but he was penned there for five days, and they went back afterward and determined the boulder was about 800 pounds. There was absolutely no way for him to free himself. So he rationed the little bit of water he had, we're talking about ounces of water is all he has, and two burritos. And that's all he had for five days. And he eventually realized, if I stay here, I'm going to die. My only hope of living is going to be to cut off my arm. And that's his choice. What would you choose? Are you going to choose to die there? Or are you going to cut off your arm in hopes of living? And he chose to use his pocket knife, cut off his arm, make a tourniquet with what he had, rappel down the 65-foot drop, and hike seven miles to safety. See, that's drastic. Yeah. That's drastic. But we're not talking just about physical life. We're talking about spiritual life. We're talking about eternal life. And we need to be drastic. A great Bible illustration, I believe, is Joseph. Genesis 39, you can look it up on your own if you want to, but most of you are familiar with that story. He's been sold into slavery into Egypt. He's been sold to Potiphar. He has risen through the ranks. He is second in command in Potiphar's house. And the Bible tells us he was a good-looking guy. And Potiphar's wife wanted to sleep with him and kept after him and kept after him and kept after him until she had her her trap set. She was ready. She had it all worked out. And still, he rejected her. How did he do that? Did he stick around and reason with her and tell her all the different ways? Oh, I can't do this. I shouldn't do this. My, he, she, he said a little bit, but ultimately, what did he do? He ran. What did Paul write to Timothy? Flee youthful lusts. She said, that's drastic. Yes. God takes sin seriously. We must take sin seriously. Here's some other possibilities. Years ago at another church, I heard of a man who had a problem and he kept visiting strip clubs. This is a problem on many levels. It's sin. He knew it was sin. But the problem was that the quickest, best way for him to get home each day from work was to pass a strip club. So his pastor or whatever counselor he was seeing was saying, you've got to go a different way. What you need to do is go the long way around. But that's going to take another half hour every day. Who cares? We have to take radical steps at times in order to avoid sin. Some of you may have seen the movie Fireproof, which I strongly recommend. It's a great movie. But the main character is struggling with pornography. And you might remember this scene that I have a photo from. He eventually takes a baseball bat and he pounds that computer. See, that's drastic. That may have been hundreds of dollars. Yes. It's taking sin seriously. And some of us may have an issue with Online pornography, online gambling. You say, yeah, those are bad, Bob. Online shopping. There may be something that you need to limit your phone time or your internet 
or you may need to get a dumb phone. You may need to do some sort of internet filtering. Why? Because God takes sin seriously, and we must take sin seriously. Here's my question for you. How desperate are you to have victory over sin? Answer that for yourself. I'm not expecting you to answer it out loud, but I do want you to think about it. How desperate are you to have victory over sin? What does Jesus say? It is better for you to enter life. And he's not just talking about the rest of your life, live your best life now. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about eternal life. How do you know that, Bob? Because he's contrasting between life, and later he calls it the kingdom of God in verse 47, with hell. These are eternal issues. Now that we've gotten to that word hell, let's talk about it. The Greek word is Gehenna or Gehenna. It's a transliteration, and we have it translated hell. It's a Hebrew, two Hebrew words that mean the Valley of Hinnom. What are you talking about? A place south of Jerusalem where children were once sacrificed to the pagan god Molech. Well, what did that look like? A god, I use little g for that, a false god, fake god, that had basically a belly that was a furnace. And they took infants and threw them in the fire, burned them alive. That's how they worshiped Molech. And that's what was going on in the time of Ahaz, and I believe Manasseh, some of the later kings of Judah, were sacrificing their children to idols. And under the reforms during Josiah's reign, that site where they had sacrificed infants in the fire became the dump. It was a dumping ground, and from Josiah's time up till the time of Jesus, and from what I understand, even into the last century, it was a garbage dump that was perpetually on fire right outside Jerusalem. The fire burned continually. You know what it burned with? Worm-infested garbage. You know, when we get to summertime and, and there are those flies in the garbage and then there are those worms in the garbage. Ugly picture. Truth about sin. What does he say about hell? He says it's the fire that will never be quenched. Please understand, hell is not a temporary thing. It's very popular today to say there is no hell, or it's just temporary, or it's annihilationist, meaning I'm going to be annihilated. I'm going to, poof, I'm going to go up in smoke when I get to hell, and that'll be it. That's not what the Bible teaches. A couple of verses to share with you on that front. Revelation 20, verse 10. The devil who deceived them, was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Hell was not created for us, guys. People were not the intended occupants of hell. The devil and the demons, the angels who fell with him, it is for their punishment. And it says there, day and night, forever and ever. You say, that's fine, Bob. You can think that if you want to. Let me give you the words of Jesus as well. This is Matthew. And if there are people who are asking you about hell or heaven, Matthew 25, 46 is one of the clearest verses I know. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. I have those two words underlined, everlasting, eternal. Same Greek word. Jesus speaking. If you want 
eternity with God in heaven. It's going to go on and on and on. That sounds good to us. And you can't deny the fact that those who do not receive salvation in Jesus are going to be punished forever. If one is eternal, they both are eternal. Verse 48, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. What we have pictured here is the internal torment, that's the worms, and the external torment, that's the fire. Who will experience this? Those who refuse salvation offered in Jesus. So let's stop and I need to clarify some things. Please do not misunderstand me today. I'm not saying that in order to be saved, in order to have eternal life, I have to clean up my act. I have to say no to sin. That's not how I get to heaven. Making myself the best Bob possible is not going to make it to heaven. Doing more good than bad is not going to make it to heaven. The only way, Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. The only way, the only truth, the only life, the only way I'm going to get to God is through Jesus. And believing in him as the son of God, the Messiah, the savior of the world, the one who died on the cross and rose again so that I would have victory over sin, that I would have the punishment taken care of, the wrath of God went on him, that I would have victory over sin in this life, that I would have eternal life with him. He's the one who did that. That's the only way I'm going to be saved. You say, okay, so you're saved by belief in Jesus Christ alone. Yes. So now you're telling me, Bob, that I have to say no to sin and be so serious that I'd be willing to cut off a body part in order to be holy. Yes and no, okay? Paul wrote to the Galatians, do you really think that you're saved by faith, by grace, and that now you're gonna sanctify yourself, make yourself holy on your own? No, it doesn't work that way. We need Jesus for both. We need his grace for both. But what I am saying is that if you are a follower of Christ, if you are a believer in Jesus, if you are saved, you will do these things. You will resist sin. You will be drastic and radical at times to avoid falling into sin. Am I saying that if you resist sin, that means you're saved? No. I think I just covered that. You are saved only by grace through faith. Believing in Jesus, it's the only way to be saved. There are no other ways. It's not that plus anything else. But if you're struggling with sin, if you say, Bob, I'm really struggling in this area. I just keep doing the same thing over and over and I, I'm convicted and I don't want to do that. That's a good thing. That's an evidence that you're believing in Christ and you're saved. It is proof. It is fruit if you're struggling. Because somebody who's unsaved isn't going to struggle with sin. I'm going to go to the bar. I'm going to cheat on my wife. I'm going to do whatever. And I'm not, I'm not bothered by that. I'm going to steal. I'm going to cheat on my taxes. Not convicted. Because he doesn't have the Holy Spirit to convict him. I can't save myself. I can't sanctify myself. But I do need to take sin seriously. Because God takes sin seriously. Third point in our act outline, we have just two verses to go. Live at peace with others. 
I get to study the Bible every week. It's a privilege. I spend time, I look at commentaries, I look at study Bibles. I read it over and over. And then I come to statements like this. This statement, unique to Mark, is difficult to interpret. About 15 possible explanations have been suggested. That doesn't give me warm fuzzies usually when I reach that. But that's saying that these next two verses are complicated, especially the next verse. Lots of different ideas. So I'm going to give you, after looking at the context this week, after studying it, after wrestling with it, frankly, I'm going to give you what I think is true about this next verse. I could be wrong. I wouldn't die for this interpretation, but I think it's the right interpretation for this context. The verse says this, For everyone will be seasoned with fire, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. That word for is a transition word that ties back to the previous section. That word fire ties us back to the previous section. We've been talking about Gehenna and the, the dump that's on fire. So it's definitely related somehow to what we've just been reading. How is it related? The next statement we have, seasoned with fire or salted with fire and seasoned with salt. That seems to be the idea from the Old Testament. We read Leviticus 2.13. It says all of the Old Testament sacrifices that are burnt offerings, all the ones that are going to go on the fire, on the altar, have to be salted as well. So there's some, some connection here between what we've been reading and now with Old Testament sacrifices. So how does this all fit together? From the context, I believe Jesus is talking to his disciples. I've treated this entire section as to believers, saved people. And I believe that's the case in this verse as well. And the way I understand it, Revelation 12:1 comes into play here. Many of you had that verse memorized. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. What is one of the primary sacrifices of me as a New Testament priest? It is that I sacrifice myself. I am a living sacrifice. It is my body. It is my will. It is my time. It is my money. All of it is God's. That's a New Testament sacrifice. A living sacrifice that is holy. Doesn't that fit in? Salt and fire. Holiness. Sanctification is what we've been talking about. I'm going to read to you from one of my commentaries. Salt was recognized as a preservative. To be salted means to receive the application of that salt, to, to receive its purifying effect. The effect of fire is also to purify whatever's not consumed. So the disciples must be acted upon by a power that is both preserving and purifying. And that seems to be a work of the Holy Spirit through the Word. The Spirit and the Word have a burning, purifying effect upon the life of of the believer. To me, that translation fits with what we've been talking about. What are we doing? We're taking sin seriously. Seriously enough that we're going to avoid temptation as much as possible, that we're going to say no to sin because I'm so good in my willpower? No, because I'm dependent on God to give me his grace as I humble myself and say, God, I need help. Brothers and sisters in Christ, probably for me, a brother in Christ. I need help. I'm struggling in this area. Would you pray with me? Would you pray for me? And I say no to sin. That purifying effect. I believe that as I'm a sacrifice, a living sacrifice to God, salted is what this is saying, the fire, I am going to 
be holy and acceptable as an offering to God. That word salt continues. We have two more statements about salt in verse 50. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. Salt is good. Well, it was good. It was necessary in that climate. They didn't have refrigeration. They didn't have artificially produced ice. So any type of meat was going to be salted a lot. For our modern terminology, think in terms of beef jerky. Something that's going to be salted a lot. doesn't have to be refrigerated anymore. will last a long time. Long shelf life. That's the idea here. They used salt as a preservative. It was absolutely necessary. So it is good. We have a very stable compound, sodium chloride. That's our table salt. It doesn't usually go bad. You might put rice or something in it so that it doesn't clog up, but it stays that a long time. So what are you talking about if it loses its flavor? We're not used to that. Well, at the time, most of their salt came from the Dead Sea. And it would have impurities in it. And if there were impurities in it, then it was good for nothing. It was very difficult to separate it out, to have pure salt again. If it had um, gypsum was one of the elements I I saw, one of the compounds that was in there. If, If that's in there, it's good for nothing. If the salt loses its flavor, how will you make it salty again? Well, if it's lost its flavor, it's useless. Then he says, have salt in yourselves. Again, the idea of the word and the Holy Spirit are producing in my life godly character. And when the Holy Spirit produces godly character in my life, that bears fruit and has an impact on my society, people around me, believers and unbelievers. A purifying effect around us, a preserving effect. And then this last statement, have peace with one another. Jesus has one last application that I think ties all the way back. This is another reason I read from verse 30 on. What were they arguing about? Who's going to be the greatest? What did John bring up? Well, these other guys weren't doing it. This one guy wasn't doing it the way we are. He's not a follower of us. I told him to knock it off. And what does Jesus bring to the surface? Their pride, their competitiveness, their concern about how other people are doing things and what other people think. So what is Jesus saying? To be at peace with one another. As one person put it, be humble and avoid stumbling or causing others to stumble. Those are our first two sections today. And then don't fuss and fight over positions or status. How are we going to be at peace with one another? Romans 12 tells us to be at peace as much as is possible, as much as lies within you, be at peace with one another. So whenever it's possible, we're supposed to be at peace. Where's that going to come from? It's going to come from humility. It's going to come from not having sin stay in my life, eradicating our lives of sin through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God. I'm going to paraphrase Jesus' words this way. This is not inspired, but be pure within yourselves and have peace with one another. I think that's what this whole section is about. What do I want you to remember from today? God takes sin seriously. We must take sin seriously. Within these sections, don't cause someone else to sin. Don't tolerate your own sin and live at peace with others. If there's anyone here in the room this morning or anyone who's joined us online, if you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, 
then what I'd like you to take from today is that hell is real. It's a place of eternal torment separated from God. But the good news is that you don't have to go there because Jesus came and died to pay the penalty for your sin. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. He came so that all believe in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. And he welcomes you to come to him and be saved today. Now, I know many of you have done that. So I'll end with these three questions. Are you causing other Christians to stumble by what you're saying to them or the way that you're living before them? Question number two. Are you dealing radically with sin in your own life? Question number three. Are you living in peace with others? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? If you sense the Holy Spirit telling you something, telling you something you need to do in response to this today, then I ask that you would obey. Is he telling you that you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus? Call on him. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Has the Holy Spirit shown you a way that you have been causing others to be tempted or to fall into sin? If he's shown you changes you need to make, obey. Are there areas in your own life that you need to deal with? Areas of sin? You need to start by confessing that to God. But you very well may need to talk to somebody else. James talks about confessing our sins to one another that we would be healed. You may need help from a brother or sister or a counselor. No, that would be expensive. No, I don't have time for that. No, that would be embarrassing. How serious are you about your sin? Our Father, we pray that you would show us what is next. Lord, there very well may be someone in this room who's wrestling with a decision right now. Someone you're speaking to very specifically. I pray that you would be victorious in that. That your Holy Spirit would be able to move freely, that we would submit to your will, that we would humble ourselves. Lord, if there's confession of sin that needs to take place, I pray that you would grant the godly sorrow that works repentance. Lord, may this be a new day. A new day in terms of 
building up our brother or sister instead of tripping him or her up? A new day in terms of saying no to sin and yes to you? A new day in which we can live at peace with our brothers and sisters in Christ because we're willing to give up our own desires and our own sin in order to have peace with you and peace with one another. Please work in our hearts. Please pour out your grace on us. And may those of us who humble ourselves find your grace and your help and your strength that your word and your spirit would bring about change in our lives and that we would do our part in that. In Jesus' name, amen.